Job 23. Um, you remember we looked at Job 22 last week, which was the third and final speech of Eliphaz. We're in the third round of speeches. And we'll mention the highlights that we touched upon. We're taking uh, larger swaths of Scripture at this stage of Job because we don't want to just continue to be a bit redundant. But it is, it is here before us. So we'll look tonight at Job's response to Eliphaz in chapters 23 and 24. We'll read chapter 23, go through 23, and we'll close reading 24. And that'll put us picking up with Bildad's third and final speech next Wednesday. And we'll begin looking at how Job will respond to him. Job 23, beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to him. Now, I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute uh, with him, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, and I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth a thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore am I troubled at his presence. When I consider, I am afraid of him. For God maketh my heart soft, and the Almighty troubleth me. Because I was not cut off before the darkness, neither hath he covered the darkness from uh, my face. Again, we looked last week at the final speech of Eliphaz, the Temanite. And we did mention to you last week, he'll be mentioned two more times, but, but it will be in the last uh, chapter of the book of Job. You remember when we were introducing the book, we went back to there, just touched upon it last Wednesday night. We, we mentioned that, uh, you know, the age-old question is, why do good people suffer? Or why do the righteous suffer? We examined that, and we were overviewing the book of Job way back yonder, months ago. Um, and, of course, we learned from the book of Job not why do good people suffer. We're not nearly as good as we want people to think we are. But we learned how we are to suffer, resting and looking to the Lord. Not having a complaint, trusting him who doeth all things well. And then we talked about how we're to comfort those that we try to be a comfort to. You remember we talked about that. We learned from Job's three friends. They are friends. The beginning of the book tells us that. And the end of the book will tell us the same. But you remember we, we, we made an emphasis last week on about four different areas, four things that we must not do if we're going to be comforters uh, to those we are close to. Number one, we must never make judgments based on what we see outwardly. It's easy to look at a man's life, a lady's life, a young person's life, or a family, 
um, when the wind blows upon them and make our assumptions about them. But I'll promise you there are details that you know nothing of and probably never will, and the same for me. Number two we talked about that we learned from Eliphaz last week that we must never try to play the Holy Spirit in the lives of others. And let me say this. Not only don't play the Holy Spirit in the lives of others, but don't let anyone do that to you. The Holy Spirit can speak to you. And these three friends of, of um, Job's, uh, they think they know more than Job. And we know what the New Testament teaches us. It teaches us that knowledge puffeth up. Sometimes we think we know more than we actually know. I came across the quote this morning of William Cowper when he said this and was recorded as saying, Knowledge is proud that he has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that he knows no more. I like that quote. We also talked about how that we must never push someone into some type of confession. And that's right, isn't it? There's a lot of man-made pressure, uh, a lot of times put upon people. We want people to conform to our image and our thought patterns rather than to the image of Christ. Uh, by the way, I was trying to help a preacher in Panola County today. Of course, you know Brother Reese is there. It's not Brother Reese. It's a brother that had to confront front a difficult situation many months back. And we were talking about it. He was talking about three different uh, families in the church where he's pastoring. They're all at different places. And, and I reminded him, uh, look, you, you, got it. you can't just throw something across all three of them and expect all three of them to get it. We're all at different places in our walk with Christ. Uh, some of us have been saved a lot of years. Some, not so much. Um, some are gifted in the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Some are gifting with various gifts. We're not all gifted the same. And in, in our gifting, you remember when we were going through the gifts of the Holy Spirit some years ago here? You remember we talked about the strong points of every gift, but the weak point, there's, there's weaknesses that go along with all. We have to guard. For example, this just elementary, and I've got to move on. But even the gift of hospitality that Peter writes about, if you're not careful, you'll think everybody ought to see what you're seeing. Everybody's not gifted the way you are. Not everybody sees through the lenses that you're looking through. And you have to give the Holy Spirit time to work in someone's life and work through that gifting. What about the gift of mercy? The gift of mercy has got to check on someone that has been sick. They can't help it. And th but th the danger with that is thinking everybody should have done what you did, right? And so uh, don't, don't ever try to push somebody in some type of, of confession of some sort. And then, of course, we said that we must never throw blanket statements over complex situations. Eliphaz said, if you'll get right with God, all this will go right and be smooth sailing from here on. Job, can't you get that? It's almost like he's saying, Job, never mind bearing ten kids, losing everything, bearing some of your servants. Never mind that. Never mind you've got sore balls from the top of your head, sole of your feet. Never mind your wife even told you to curse God and get it over with. Just going to snap up and go right on now. Lickety split. In Job's response to Eliphaz, this is covered in Job 23 and 24. We find in chapter number 23, Job is lifting up in chapter 23. In chapter number 24, he's looking out. In chapter number 23, as he is lifting up, he is the suffering saint. And of course, in verses 1 to 9, he's lifting up his voice. 
verses 10, 11, and 12, he is lifting up his thoughts. And verses 13 to 17, he is lifting up or exalting our Lord, even in his pain. Job, in Job chapter number 24, Job's looking out. He continues to make his case that I'm not suffering because I've sinned. Uh, Look about you. He'll list, he'll catalog a number of people that are sinning, but they're doing it successfully. They're getting away with it. You could try to make that case tonight that only people who sin suffer. We've all sinned and we all suffered to some degree. But I tell you, I know some old boys living in the Troy community. One, I was talking on the phone last week, and I'm telling you, the highway patrol rushed in, set up a roadblock. It was obvious what they set up for in about 10 minutes' time. There was a little white car, Hyundai, hit the roadblock. By the time they were stopping for the, for the highway patrol to show their license or whatever, they nailed it down the Chapman Road they go. Then here comes everybody. Looked like it was... Um, uh, Looked like uh, everybody was moving in to take over this old boy. I think I know who he was. About time somebody got up with him. But uh, Job, in looking out, he makes the case, all sinners who are sinning and sinning grossly are not suffering. And that's the case, isn't it? Well, let's get to it. Chapter number 23, verses 1 to 9. Job's response to the final speech of Eliphaz. In chapter number 23, he's lifting up in this chapter as he responds to Eliphaz. He's lifting up his voice in verses 1 to 9. He doesn't just take what Eliphaz has to say to him sitting down. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Job's pain is expressed. Verses 1 and 2 of Job 23. Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. He said, my stroke is heavier than my groaning. His physical, the physical side of his pain has taken a great toll on him. And, and you'll remember when, when we were in chapter number 2, when, when Satan said to God, said, said uh, skin for skin. I know he slipped by that uh, fourfold attack I just leveled against him. Let me touch his life, skin for skin. A man will give anything and everything for his life. He said, I'll make him curse you to, you, to your face. And God said, you can, you, can, uh, you can touch him, touch his body, touch his life, touch his health. But again, remember, that was measured. That was even in chapter 1, though it was devastating, that was measured. And uh, so the sore balls, we saw him as he took those And he winds up in the ash heap. But you remember, we made a broad sweep through the book of Job, looking at some of the evidences of the sufferings, uh, Job's physical pain. For example, there were the sore balls in chapter 2. In chapter 3, there was his inability to eat. He groaned continually. In chapter number 3, he had a sense of heavy anxiety. Chapter number 7, he had insomnia, or he could not rest, could not sleep, could not find rest. In chapter number 7, there were worms in his body, and there was the running of the balls, the sore balls all over his body. In chapter number 9, we learned he had difficulty breathing. The heaviness of his pain caused such. In chapter 16, we talked about the constant evidence of his weeping and, and also the dark circles around his eyes. It's interesting that God would record that, isn't it, about a man who is hurting. There was great... Uh, weight loss because of his suffering, chapter 19, verse 20, chapter 33, verse 21. 
Job's in constant pain. His pain would be greater at night, according to Job 30 and verse number 17. Greater at night, as is the case. This thing about when Lindsay and Annie Ray, we mentioned them in the ear infections. Y'all remember that when you were a child? Maybe you haven't. Seemed like it was worse at night and made the night drag out and carry on a little longer. Job's friends, remember when they see him in chapter number two, they don't even recognize him. I reminded you of Dr. Way, when Dr. Way and his body uh, lie there in the casket. Those, I was unable to go, was receiving treatments at that time. But um, those who went said, if you didn't know it was him in the casket, you'd have never known it was him. One of the dearest friends and mentors I've ever had in my Christian journey. In verses 3 to 7, now Job says in verse number 2, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Or no, excuse me, yeah, verse number 2. Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. He said, fellas, you see me. You know what I'm going through at this point, but it's worse than you can see. He says, fellas, you, you hear me. I'm, I'm complaining. My complaint, my groaning is great, but it's worse than you can understand. So he's talking about his constant pain. Look at verses 3 through 9. We'll read them together. In verses 3 through 9, Job is passionate about pursuing and seeking God. He wants to find God. He wants an opportunity to slip into his courtroom and stand before him and plead his cause. He wants somebody to hear him that can can minister to him and, and absorb what he's going through. Verse 3 through 9, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. In other words, he would state his case. Verse number 5, I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him, he hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot uh, see him. Everybody has visited Job. His messengers have visited him, or at least four of them have. Servants that became messengers, his wife has visited him. His three friends have visited him. But it seems that God hasn't visited him. Now, you get to that mindset, that must be a place of despair. Where is God that he might be found? Everybody's had a word for him. The four messengers had a word for him. His wife had a word for him. His three friends have had a word for him. But God has not had a word for him in all of this. You remember we've already talked about on a handful of occasions, God and Satan have discussed him. God has discussed Job with Satan, but he has not had a word with Job himself. The old Puritan, I've quoted him often for 25 years, I suppose, concerning affliction. He said, and worst of all is when God does nothing. Usually when you're suffering, you feel as though God is afar off and he has not drawn nigh. If you've never heard, that's foreign to you, and it slipped right by you. But if you've ever been startled with some news or you've ever suffered, you know that to be the case. Now, Job's passionate about standing in God's courtroom, verses 3 to 7. We read that. 
that God could vindicate and God could validate. He could vindicate Job. He's been accused of being a great sinner. He could validate his claims. God could do that for Job if he would so choose. But God does not choose to do so. Job's three friends have falsely accused him. And God knows the truth. You'll notice in verses 3, 8, and 9, Job's passionate in his search for God. In verse number 8, he said, I I cannot perceive him. In verse number 9, he says, I cannot behold him. In verse number 9, I cannot see him. Then he stated, of course, in verse number 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Though Job couldn't see him, it didn't mean God wasn't there. And we all, in our weakness, can come to a place that we say, I I don't see him, I don't hear him. Where is God? He's where he's always been. I heard an older preacher in uh, about 93, I guess it was, I heard an older preacher talked about this lady that lost her her son, her son at a young age, and her pastor came, uh, stood there with she and her husband at at the viewing, and um, she asked, she said, preacher, she said, where was God when my son lost his life? And he said, dear lady, I don't mean to be harsh in any way. He said, but God was where he was when he lost his son. God is there, child of God. And I'm glad he knows. Our two youngest, they'd get in a squabble uh, when they were little fellas. And Matthew would turn to Anna. And you could tell when he meant business, he'd say, now, Anna, God knows. Now, God, and he'd be just as, he'd stand on his feet about it. And uh, God knows, dear heart. And I'm glad we can rest our case with him. A lot of times in our lives, it is like it is in, in, in the daytime when dark clouds begin to gather in. And, and, and it kind of darkens the sun and, and you can't see the sun, but you know it's there. And we take God at his word. When dark clouds gather in our lives, he is there. Take cheer tonight, child of God. In verses 10 through 12, Job is found lifting up his thoughts as he responds to Eliphaz. Verses 10 through 12, here's what Job says. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. There is a knowledge that is greater than our experiences, right? No matter what we expect, there is a knowledge of God that is greater than what we may experience. And we comfort ourselves as his people, as his children, knowing what he has stated. Again, for those times that we don't feel just like we ought to feel as a child of God. Our experiences are overwhelming to us. Um, Sometimes we don't know what to do. Of course, in times when we don't know what to do, there are a few things we can do that we do know. We can do what's right. We can trust in the Lord. We can pray. We can ask our church family and our friends to pray. We can walk in his ways. We can avoid accusations. And we can avoid becoming bitter in life. We can do that. The Bible says about David, we've referred to it several times on and off this year, David encouraged himself in the Lord. 
some things David knew about the Lord. Then you'll remember when Paul stood before King Agrippa, he not only stated he thought himself happy, but he told Agrippa why. He's happy standing before Agrippa. His confidence was in the Lord, no doubt, but he had confidence that Agrippa, it's in the text over there, Acts 26, verse 2 and 3, said, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. He knew that at least he is now before a man who can discern. And as a matter of fact, had he not pleaded his Roman citizenship, Agrippa gave testimony, he would have set him free. But he had already appealed to Caesar. There's nothing legally he could do about it. But Paul thought himself happy to stand before a man that could hear him, hear him fairly, and judge according to the Jewish custom and law. Proverbs 23, verse number 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. This world says knowledge is power. I would say that knowledge can be ministry and a balm to your soul, child of God. For as a man thinketh, so is he. Don't quit praying. Don't quit reading your Bible. You'll read a portion of the Word of God every day. Meditate upon it. Mull it over. You say, what does it mean to mull it over? It's kind of like a cow in the pasture. Go pick up in the morning what you can pick up and then go out under the shade tree after a while and do what people do. Belch it back up and chew on it some more. Get the good out of it. I know two or three preachers, they'll be preaching a text and I'll think they can get nothing else out of it. And lo and behold, they'll go back and there's something else to behold. The Word of God is inexhaustible, right? What I mean in that is... We could assign, we won't, but we could assign Genesis 1-1 to every preacher for our Bible conference. And God lets us live and lets them live, and we're all able to gather. Every one of them could preach from Genesis 1-1. Every one of them would have the same emphasis, and yet every one of them would have a different emphasis. The Word of God is inexhaustible. So be careful when the Bible says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Be careful what you focus on, what you dwell on, what you give yourself to. Be careful what you think on. Because what you think on, according to the Bible, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you watch on the TV. Be careful what you look at on a computer screen. Be careful who we spend our time with. Everything I think upon colors how I see life. And it will you too. You put junk in, junk's coming out. In the first pastorate, I was preaching on influences in our lives, the eye gate, the ear gate, and the influences in our lives through people. And there's a lady about three weeks later, she come to church, and after the service, she said, I want to tell you something. Now, this may sound elementary to you, but it meant something to her. She said, I've been watching soap operas all my adult life. And she said, I said, God really dealt with my heart about what I was allowing my eyes to see. And said, you know, that's influenced my life. And she said, I've made my mind up. That's gone out of my life. She was as thrilled as she could be about it. In verse number 10, Job says, God is faithful. He says, God is faithful. Verse number 10, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. When he hath tried me. The word picture here is that of, um, is that of the furnace and the furnace of affliction. We referred to this just recently. Turn with me to First Peter. 
four verses of Scripture, which all four of them, I believe, are key to interpreting and understand the purpose to First Peter. The furnace, the furnace of affliction. Job is talking about being in this furnace. God is the refiner. He's looking for his reflection as he turns the heat up, as he allows Job to go through this furnace. Uh, maybe you'd underline these verses. Two verses in chapter 1 of First Peter, two verses in chapter 4 gives you the purpose for the book of First Peter being in your Bible. First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Watch what he says, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious uh, than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then hurriedly, over in chapter number 4, verses 12 and 13 of First Peter, he writes, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. He says in verse 13, But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Job's in the furnace. He says he knows where I'm at. He's looking over in the, in the furnace. And uh, he is the refiner. He is the potter. We are the clay. He is the refiner. We are that metal that he's trying to refine. When we're in the furnace, there are a couple of things that we cannot control, right? We cannot control the temperature. Have you ever wondered when some affliction would end? Have you ever wondered how am I going to get through the night? Will I survive the night? Will we survive? Nor can you control the time you were in the furnace. God will have to say so in that. Job 1 and Job 2 will bear that out. A couple of things we can do while in the furnace. Verse number 11, we can obey God. Job did. The Bible says in verse 11, My foot hath held his steps, his way have I kept, and not declined. Verse number 12, we can trust his word. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary Food. He says, God has been faithful in verse 10. Then he says, I have been faithful in verse 11 and the first portion of verse number 12. Listen to what he says in 11 and 12. We just read the verses. He said, My foot hath held his steps, his way have I kept, and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. He said, God's been faithful in verse 10. He said, I've been faithful. I couldn't help but think about uh, the two men in, in the Bible. Now, we know many men in Scripture walked with God. And that was, uh, but there are two men that is specifically stated about. In Genesis 5, it is stated about Enoch, and Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. He walked with God. And then the Bible says in Genesis 6, in verse number 9, it says, And Noah walked with God. Doesn't say that about any other two. We know they did. We know there were men walked with God. Go to Hebrews 11, for example. There's a listing. There's, there's a whole catalog of people there. Um, what verse 11 is saying is, is Job walked with God. And yet all this happened to him. Job walked with God. Listen to what he says. From his own lips, my foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not... Uh, declined, not declined. Job's 
walked with God. In verse number 12, uh, as, as he says in, in, in verse number, or excuse me, here, this, this business of him walking with God, I thought about today and looked up some old notes on it. The, the book of Amos, um, there are several questions in the book of Amos that are very probing questions, and every one of them have obvious answers. Uh, Amos, J. Vernon McGee called him the country preacher that went to town. He was a he was a sheep herder and gatherer of sycamore fruit. His hands would have been calloused. His skin would have been bronzed. He would have probably been very uncouth. He just knew when he woke up in the morning what was before him. It was manual labor and you just do it. He would have been probably very strong in his constitution. A man of resolve. I'll tell you how strong he is when, when the uh, hireling prophet in the northern kingdom comes to him. His name's Amaziah. When he comes to him in chapter number, I believe it is 7 of the book of, of, uh, of Amos, he said, look, this is the king's church. This is the king's court. Folk like you don't belong here with us. He put his old bony finger in his face and raised his raspy voice, and he said, big boy, your day's coming too. And he said, I ain't no more afraid of you than I am your king or anybody else around here. He said, I'm going to tell you what God told me to tell you. And it was rather embarrassing what God was going to do to the old hireling preacher. He didn't wince. Matter of fact, i tell you what he did. He started out in Amos 1 and Amos 2. He got talking about this group of people and that group of people and that group of people. And you can almost hear him say, I think we're going to like you, so boy. Well, as a matter of fact, he said something say about all of our enemies and what God's going to do to them. And then he got on the southern kingdom, and they had all against their own people in the southern kingdom, those two and a half tribes. And they said, yeah, we really like him. Then he said, now, let me tell you what your problem is. He said, the Lord's going to roar from Jerusalem like a lion when a lion leaps, when he roars, his roar and his leap is simultaneous. And the reason for that is, uh, is because his roar so petrifying that it just it paralyzes his praise, a sure catch. And he said, God's going to get you in your shirt tail one day. In chapter 5 of the book of Amos, I'll tell you how much brass he had on his face. He sung their funeral song and them sitting there listening to him. He said, every one of you dead. He's like R.G. Lee in his famous sermon, Payday Someday. In essence, he was saying the wheels of justice may grind Slowly, but they do grind nonetheless. But you remember those questions in chapter number three? Probing questions, very searching questions. He asked this question, can two walk together except they be agreed? That's a question for all time. It doesn't just belong to the northern kingdom of Israel, but it belongs to the church as well. In order to walk with God, number one, there's got to be submission to his will. Number two, there's got to be an agreement to his authority. A handful of times through the years, I've asked men stronger than, than me when they tried to twist the Scripture to fit them and them alone. I've made the statement that God didn't write you a Bible, one for the rest of us. And I said it about like I said it right there each time. If we're going to submit to the authority of God, we've got to submit to what he's recorded in his word. Can two walk together except they be agreed? If, if we were to walk down the aisle together tonight, if Amanda and I were to walk down the aisle, if I were to ask her to go, she's going to have to meet me right there in front of the communion table and let's walk together. If we're going to walk together, I can't walk down the aisle and her walk down the side. 
I can't start out this way and her go that way. There has to be submission to his will and agreement to his authority. But I want to say this. I, I want to say that, 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 the, that walking with God is one of the greatest joys that a child of God can experience. Does he ever put glory in your soul around your home or going down the road in an automobile or on the job? Or maybe a kid, you put them to bed and in the night God reminds you of his goodness and grace toward you. Walking with God is one of the greatest experiences. Those old men, I, I tell young preachers when they ask me, what, where do I start with books? I ask them what they have and I tell every one of them, you ought to, you ought to have a body of divinity by Thomas Watson, my favorite of the Puritans. He poses his question in a body of divinity what is the purpose uh, of man? He says it is to know God and enjoy him forever. You don't have to look like your mom and mom moved in every day of your life. You can enjoy God. You actually can enjoy God. The question, can two walk together except they be agreed? It implies an atmosphere of harmony. Must be some predeciding. You're not going to serve God. You're not going to walk with God on accident. You're going to have to do that on purpose. It's about like coming to church. If you want to come to church, you ain't going to do that on haphazardly. You're going to have to get up, get ready, and come to church. It implies an atmosphere of fellowship. Our outlook and our desires are the same. It implies direction and destiny of the two parties. Job is walked with God. The scriptures are reliable, he says, at the end of verse number 12. He says in verse number 12, we'll read it and move on. He says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job speaks of his word as being necessary. If it is necessary, it's because it is reliable, and it is. Verses 13 to 17, Job is found lifting up or exalting God as he responds to Eliphaz. He, he really magnifies here the providential workings of God in his life. And I don't even know if Job knows what he's saying here. The weight of what he's saying. Listen to verses 15 to 17. Or excuse me, verse 13 through 17. He writes, but he is in one mind. And who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. In other words, he does what he wants to do. Nobody can change that. Verse number 14. For he performeth a thing that is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. Therefore am I troubled at his presence when I consider I am afraid of him. For God maketh my heart soft, and the Almighty troubleth me, because I was cut off before the darkness, neither hath he covered the darkness from my face. He magnifies the providential workings of God in his own life here. He speaks of the God of providence, verse 13 and 14, just very briefly. Notice the emphasis on the personal pronouns for God here in verses 13 and 14. He doesn't talk about what the devil's done to him. He doesn't even talk about right here anything other than God. God is his subject. Watch this, verse 13 and 14. But he is in one mind. In other words, his mind's made up. And who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. 
For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. You know what he's saying? He is saying God is talking to me. He'll say it in the next couple of verses. Does he not? Sure he does. He said he's softened my heart. He's working in my life. He's assigned purpose to what I'm experiencing. God's hand is upon my life. It's amazing, isn't it, how God does that? Uh, We think he's killing us. He ain't killing us. He might take even a good man. When he puts him through his furnace, when he comes out the other side, he'll be a better man. He'll go in short and choppy. He'll come out long-suffering and gentle. She'll go in critical and harsh. She'll come out on the other side and love your neck when you're hurting. She'll cook you a casserole and bring to you, send you a card. It's amazing how God does that. I know a couple of preachers. I've I, Really, I've asked them to give some of the younger guys, give them some, some leeway. I've heard their own testimony where they were short and mean about things, and God changed their hearts through the years. But they want to hold everybody bondage to where they met them at the first two or three years in, in the race. It's very unfair. It's unscriptural too. God's working in your life, and you can see it and mark where he has worked in your life. You may not believe it, but God could be working in someone else's life too. And it could be they may see something you don't see. You don't believe that, do you? <laughs> Job is, he speaks of God's providence. God's plan for Job's trials, seen in verse number 14, 15 to 17, Job is perplexed still at the workings of God in his life, verses 15 to 17. It's obvious to Job God's working. Satan's had a heyday in his life, but it's, it's obvious to Job that God is working. He's God conscience. One thing I really enjoyed about going through the life of Joseph, those experiences in the life of Joseph, and what I preached here, word for word, I preached it in the Carolinas and Tennessee and Georgia. But what so astounds me about the life of Joseph, he's, even as a young man, he's so God-conscious. Do you live your life conscious of God? Are you aware that he's aware? Do you know that he knows? Job knows God's work. Look at it. Verse number 14, he said it. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Then he said in verse 15, Therefore am I troubled at his presence. That word troubled carries with it the idea of feigning. When I consider, I am afraid of him. He says in verse number 16, For God maketh my heart soft, and the Almighty troubleth me. Because I was not cut off, cut off before the darkness. Neither hath he covered the darkness from my face. He could have spared me from this. But it must be the best way. Because he did not stop it. He did not prevent it. We're going to read 24, chapter 24. I, I'm not going to do anything with it other than tell you what's there in the verses. And you'll spot it as we go through it. You, you remember we, we've... Uh, Tried to deal with the fact that, um, you know, if all you see in your life is problems, you'll begin to think that life is a problem. 
Life has its share of problems, but it's not a problem. God's been good to let us wait to another day. God's been good. Uh, so uh, yesterday morning, two red-headed woodpeckers on one of the pine trees in front, they were chasing one another. They'd go back and forth around one pine, fly over to the other one, and they'd take turns chasing each other. Around. And I said, Amanda, you'll never believe what I'm watching. If you look about you, God's been really good to you. None of us have arrived. As a matter of fact, I, we really ought to come out of the bed like Kayra Blackard says every morning with a ha- hallelujah in one foot and a glory to God in the other one. Probably ought to get up and see the sun shining, realize God granted us a, a night's rest and another day, and probably ought to come out of the bed saying, again, you've smiled upon me. He owes us nothing. If you view life from the lens of pain, you're going to have a distorted view of life and even others even others in your life. In chapter number 24, um, Job is going to challenge this idea of his three friends. Again, we're just going to read the chapter. He's going to make his case that not all sinners who sin greatly are suffering because he's going to, he's going to show these three uh, fellows, that there are many sinners in this world that are sinning and doing it, as we mentioned earlier, successfully, getting away scot-free, it would appear. So he's letting them know in chapter 24, your, um, your philosophy about this thing is all flawed. Let's read it and we're done. Why seeing times are not hidden from the Almighty, do they, now, uh, do they that know him not see his ways? Some remove the landmarks, they violently take away flocks and feed thereof. They drive away the ass of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They turn the needy out of the way. The poor of the earth hide themselves together. Behold, his wild asses in the desert go they forth to their work, rising betimes for a prey. The wilderness yieldeth fruit for them, yieldeth food for them, excuse me, and for their children. They reap every one his corn in, in the field, and they gather the vintage in the wicked of the wicked They cause the naked to lodge without clothing, that they have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and embrace the rock for want of a shelter. They pluck the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge of the poor. They cause him to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaf from the hungry, which make oil within their walls and tread their winepresses and suffer thirst. Men groan from out of the city and the soul of the wounded Crieth out, yet God layeth not folly to them. They are of those that rebel against the light. They know not the ways thereof, nor abide in the past thereof. The murderer rising with the light killeth the poor and needy, and in the night and in the night is as a thief. The eye also of the adulterer waiteth for the twilight, saying, No eye shall see me, and disguiseth his face. In the dark they dig through houses which they had marked for themselves in the daytime. They know not the light. Uh, For the morning is to them even as the shadow of death. If one know them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. He is swift as the waters. Their portion is cursed in the earth. He beholdeth not the way of the vineyards. Drought and heat consume the snow waters. So doth the grave those which have sinned. The womb shall forget him. The worm shall feed sweetly on him. 
He shall be no more remembered, and wickedness shall be broken as a tree. He evil entreateth the barren that beareth not, and doeth not good to the widow. He draweth also the mighty with his power. He riseth up, and no man is sure of life, though it be given him to be in safety, whereon he resteth, yet his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted for a little while, but are gone and brought low. They are taken out of the way as all other and cut off as the tops of the ears of corn. And if it be not so now, who will make me a liar and make my speech nothing worth? He challenges them. He says, fellas, they live their life. They reap their harvest. They get what they want. They do what they do. They run over people. They'll take pledges, even a coat off a man's back, and won't give it to him, send him away wearing absolutely nothing because they're greedy, and they'll get it the way they want to have it, Until they die, they'll get away with it. Not all God's people suffer. Not all sinners get by. Life's a mystery. By the time you think you've got everybody figured out, everything will turn, the wind will change, and prove to you, you're not going to figure this thing out. Just leave it with God. Leave it with God. Let's stand. We'll dismiss in prayer.